You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 233, Bella Hunake, a fierce survivor advocate. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Today, we are honored to bring a story from a survivor here to the podcast. I'm so glad to welcome Bella Hunake to the show today. She is a fierce advocate of anti-trafficking initiatives to combat and abolish human trafficking. As a survivor herself, she understands the adverse impact of trafficking. This empathy has guided her career and interests to support policies that continue supporting victims as they navigate their life after victimization. Bella currently serves on two human trafficking consuls. She's a member of the U.S. Advisory Council on Human Trafficking and Framework, a training and technical assistance project aimed at building capacity to address labor trafficking in the United States. As part of the Consul, Bella worked with the Trump administration on an executive order on combating human trafficking and online child exploitation. Her goals remain steadfast, raise awareness, reduce risk of victimization, educate members of the judicial system and the general public, and advocate for victim protection and treatment. Bella, we are so glad to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So, Bella, you are a hero for me. I met you in Washington, D.C. in January, and I've just been inspired watching you, reading. I read the U.S. Advisory Council 2020 report, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so other people can join me. But the thing that really inspires me is how you describe yourself as a fierce advocate. Can you tell me what that looks like? I define fears as resiliency, right? An ability, effort, and personal commitment to take adversity into advocacy for either yourself or others. And for me, it's doing what I can with what I have and not waiting for like a a savior to save victims instead of being a part of that. Wow. I love that. Not waiting for somebody to come and rescue, but being a part of your own resilience. That's great. I want to be fierce like you. (laughs) You can, it's possible. Yes. All right. So let's dig into some of these things you've been working on. And you, after going from victim to survivor, you went to college and you speak Spanish. Yes. That's, That's amazing. I really love that. Even got a master's degree. I think sometimes people don't realize what resilience looks like and the potential for someone to really attain their dreams that often may have been how they were lured into being trafficked. So let's dig into training agendas. What would you make like your top three things that you want judicial system leaders to know. You got 10 minutes, they're busy. What are you going to tell them? That's a really good question. You know, I think the first thing, like you mentioned, me going to college, 
I'm actually a trained therapist. And so the first thing I would say based on my personal and professional experience is this idea of trauma in the brain, what victims go through beyond trafficking. After this idea of being rescued or being found, there's another reality. It's the first door that's closed, right? And now you assume that we're going to be in this new haven, but that's not the reality. So I would like to train them on the trauma in the brain so that they understand what victims go through when they have to comply with like the investigation process of sentencing the perpetrator or the trafficker. So that would be my first thing is for a victim, this is what it looks like to testify in court. This is what my body feels like. And I'll come back to this in a second. That's the first thing. The second thing would be to train them on understanding the importance of words and see victims as criminals versus people who have faced adversities and kind of just point out a disconnect on what the policies and laws are in regards to victims and also how they are implemented. So what I mentioned earlier in terms of trauma in the brain, I remember being 14, going to court. At this point, I was in Michigan, going to court, and I had to testify because you know that in labor trafficking, unlike sex trafficking, the standard is much higher, right? The prosecutor will have to prove either force, coercion, or fraud was involved, but it doesn't need to be like that in the case of sex trafficking. And I remember having to be a part of that judicial system in terms of complying with the investigation. And I remember the defense attorney wanted to present the case as me. I was purchased from my parents in Togo, that the domestic servitude was normal in my culture, that I was not a trafficking victim. And I had to attest to my trauma. And at this point, imagine 14 just had got out of that house where I was being held captive, along with 20 other girls. And there's only two of us who are willing. I think it was more about perhaps maybe we're the only one who wants who were able to both mentally able to comply with the investigation. And I, Cindy, when I was telling a story of what happened to me, supporting that, no, I was not purchased. No, domestic servitude is different than labor trafficking. I remember my brain, I was cold, right? The room wasn't cold, but I was cold because my trafficker was in front of me when I was testifying. And you were 14 years old. At this point, I was 14. At this point, I was 14. Mind you, I was trafficked when I was 10. I was discovered later. And then at this time, we, we were found. And now we have to comply with the investigation. It was a federal case. And when I say that, training on the uh, on the trauma in the brain I mean I felt aches in my body I felt I I just felt like I was in that house all over again the smell suddenly I I just my nerves were so high it was a, a physical response to something that didn't even exist right that PTSD was so intense that during recess I went to the bathroom and I started throwing up And I was up there, I want to say about 10 minutes, and I couldn't continue. That's how severe that PTSD is. And that's something I wish that, you know, members of the judicial system and leaders will understand what goes 
to a victim's brain and body when they have to stand there, face their traffickers, and specifically in regards to labor trafficking. In your bio, you say this empathy has guided your career and you just pulled me into your experience and you're very brave and I just want to thank you. And I'm very sure that hearing your story will impact people in how they understand trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care now is part of our vocabulary in almost all social services, and we sort of abbreviate it TIC, TIC, and it becomes kind of taken for granted, but we have to go back and feel that pain. Okay, one more thing you're going to teach the judicial system. I use an example of the importance of words and criminalization. So what I mean by that is, Cindy, if I place a person in front of you as a prosecutor and I say, Your Honor, this person, and this person happens to be a trafficking victim. And I said, uh, Your Honor, this is a prostitute. This is what she has done. This is the type of things that she's done. Your brain, right, as our human nature is going to cause us to see that victim as a criminal versus someone who has been victimized, somebody who has been hurt. But if we, if I were to be in front of you as a prosecutor and I say, Your Honor, this person is a victim of trafficking. Instantly, we're going to be thinking about support services, uh, organizations that, that could, could help this person. So I wanted to kind of make sure that my training will also encompass the importance of words and the ways that we present victims to systems because that guides their reality into, you know, if they are going to be placed in a rehabilitation center, if they are going to receive support services, or if they are going to be stigmatized and continue to be re-exploited further. So that's something that I have seen in other cases where survivors were, certain words were used to describe describe survivors' experience, and the outcome was always negative, and that just causes another path of re-exploitation. That's so good. Such good, wise advice Mm -hmm. for all of us. So you mentioned how much harder it is to address labor trafficking in the courts. So why is labor trafficking so hard to fight? I don't know if it's a matter of labor trafficking being hard to fight or if it's a matter of what we as the public have prioritized. I will say that labor trafficking is not a crime that people go out and look for, you know, like a speeding ticket. People, you know, a police officer might be on patrolling the streets to see who are breaking like crimes every day. Labor trafficking is not something that is being searched for by, uh, you know, law enforcement. So I usually say this thing, right? This is my, in terms of my trafficking, like advocacy is that human trafficking has complexity for creating invisibility and labor trafficking further proves this, right? How often, Cindy, have you seen law enforcement patrolling workplaces? It's totally not what they're doing. I mean, they're not going into a restaurant to find out if somebody's washing dishes mm-hmm. as a trafficking victim. 
I think it's easier to see sex trafficking and the issues around labor trafficking are just much more invisible. I like your analogy of a speeding car. It's easy. Oh, you see it, you chase it. So how can we begin to change that? So that's what I meant, as in labor trafficking is not something that they're actively investigating. And another thing is that when you see a story in the media about trafficking victims, there's more emotions that are guided towards survivors of sex trafficking. It's rare to see in the media that whenever you see a trafficking story, the labor aspect of it is not highlighted, right? Another example I would like to give is that let's say that there's a nine-year-old girl who was given to an aunt and the aunt instead put her on the internet, give her drugs so she can perform and she's bee starved, burnt, and then she was forced to have sex with men for money. If that story goes out in the media, we as public are going to instantly feel really, really bad for that person, for that nine-year-old girl. Like, this is a nine-year-old girl. How could somebody do this to her? Now, that's a story of instance where there's sex trafficking, right? Labor trafficking, for instance, if we say a same nine-year-old girl, she was taken by her aunt and was promised with education. Instead, she was forced to work 18-hour days with no food, no money, was forced to turn over all her earnings. She's threatened, beat, starved. That is a story of labor trafficking. Now, there's a horror, right, in between the two. Both are horrors. But then somehow we have trained ourselves to think that there is more empathy to be given to the nine-year-old who was sold on the internet and forced to get into the life of sex trafficking. And there's not much emphasis placed on the same horror for when a person, a girl or a boy is found as labor trafficking victim. So I think we need to reprioritize our attention to see both crime as a crime that needs to stop. And I think the more we prioritize seeing both as a crime, that will guide narratives. All right. So one of the things that you wanted to talk about today was your work in the survivor advocacy role and what post-survivor life is like. Do you want to talk about how you see the best way forward for a survivor Once you're out of the situation where you're being labor trafficked and now you're a survivor, what are the things that are really important for you to gain that resiliency? And how do you address the adverse impact issues that we talked about before? For me, as somebody who is from another country being trafficked to America, for me was the biggest thing was Basically, it starts with victim services, but also there's a sense of community. In my instance, there was like, like I mentioned earlier, one door closed and another one opened. There was, I was a victim, I was found, and I had to go through that process of self-efficacy. But then I had to solidify my legal immigration status. I had to comply with the investigation to sentence my traffickers. And that's the only way that allowed me to achieve my personal goals. And, you know, I like to also incorporate like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and tie that with survivor's experience. 
when you become a survivor, if your immediate needs are not met, you have two choices. Only two choices, Cindy. You either return to the life that you know or face the journey of the unknown. That's the only two choices. So what I mean by that is, as a survivor, if my immigration status is not sad, then where am I going to go to work where they don't re-exploit me again? Right. Uh, as a survivor, if I don't receive mental health services, how can I distinguish between the good memories that I had with my trafficker and also understand that those good memories also took place in a horror environment? That takes training and practice from a clinician for your brain to know to separate bad memories versus good memories versus bad person. Otherwise, you say, you know what? Here I am. The court case is over. Now what? I can either A, go back to work at somewhere where I don't have paperwork. I don't understand English. I don't know anything. I also have this trauma that is left unaddressed. So I'm trying to interpret it to the biggest capacity or the highest capacity as I can, but I still don't understand it. So for me, I will say that not to speak for all victims, but there's a trend here is that, you, you know, survivors are often, somebody like me could be seen as a token, right? Yes, I was a victim and I went and achieved great things, but then there are steps for that. I had a community, you know, I entered foster care as a child as, as a young adult, and there was a community that helped guide me. There was support groups. But what about survivors who don't have that? Cindy, I mentioned to you that there were 22 of us. It was one boy and 21 girls. Out of that, there were only five of us who I say that are productive members of society now. And the only difference that I can say, this is not some, a case study. This is not, this is a real life story they all have names they are actual people right right out of 22 of us there's only five five of us who are not back into the life five of us who are thriving right five of us who can say that we're fierce and you know i like to think that there's my own goals my own motivation and dedication to not be defined by my trafficking experience but that will be minimizing their strength. So I would like to say there's a sense of community. I had a GAL, a guardian ad litem, who made sure to hold the foster care system accountable. I had an immigration attorney who was taking care of my immigration status and making sure that I wasn't deported or returned or, you know, another immigration barrier. I had a mental health person who I saw every two, three days out of the week. I had ESL, so I had a community of support. I had different stakeholders who were working together to make sure. Now, Cindy, that was not just me. That's five of us who had that. Now, the rest of them did not have that. So they were left alone. They were further, I want to say they were abandoned, right? They were failed twice. Once by their family members, second by society. And every single day when I talked to one of them, I wonder, what can I do? How can I help? Because I know that if that happens to the, those girls I grew up with, it's likely to happen to hundreds of survivors that are within our communities, within our country. So how can I support that based on my experience? 
And Cindy, when I tell you these girls, they are called them sisters. They are my sisters because from age nine until I was, we were all found, we function as sister. We share the same background. We are kind of tight by this trauma, but then some of us are moving past this and some of them are just stagnant in that. So I will say that as much as I like to say, hey, I have a master's degree today. I speak five languages. When I went from not being able to speak any language because we were beaten, starved, if we spoke English, if we read anything English related, from that to speaking additional languages, to receiving a bachelor's degree, to receiving a master's degree, to sitting on councils, that is not something that happened on my own will. I think it's a combination of things to include having a community, God, I'm a big person of faith. I think that's a, that's a combination of God. You know, that's a combination of my own resiliency. And that's it, right? But that doesn't mean that if another survivor has God and own will, they can get to their place where they say, oh, I'm successful today. It really has to take a community. And that's what I, I'm striving to be a part of by being on this council is how can I be a, in a community? where if I'm not supporting directly in the front lines, I'm still a part of the narrative that makes sure that survivors are supported so that more of us can share stories and say, hey, today I am this, I'm this, I'm this, and not be defined by I am a victim. And that's it. That's, this is where all my story stopped. At nine, this happens to me. And then at 15, my story stopped there. And there's no opportunity. I just stopped there and I'll continue this life when there's another opportunity, right? So this, this is what I would say, Cindy. It takes a community. Wow. And I did the math while you were talking. Five out of 22 girls means you have 17 sisters who did not have the same kind of community. And now they don't have the same kind of resilience and opportunity for success that you've taken. Wow. That's really hard because I was celebrating your success and I was happy to hear some of the stories of the success of the other girls rescued. But now I'm looking at the other side of that and um, well, we've got a lot of work to do. I think your work on the U.S. Advisory Council is really important. And do you feel like you're accomplishing your goals? Do you have suggestions for how we can move forward? Moving forward, I'd like to just say that I would like more collaboration between stakeholders, members of the criminal justice system, community, and you know, nonprofit organizations who are committed to this work. I would like to see more collaboration. And I also like to see survivor experience, survivors included in that, not excluded in that. And I think we're moving forward to that, right? The advisory council, we are basically like a survivor's voice on a national level. So I would like to see this interdisciplinary collaboration with the members, the different stakeholders that I talk about including survivors being one of the stakeholders. So I feel that to an extent, 
we are accomplishing that. And I, I'm very happy and I feel very fortunate to be there with other survivors who are, you know, we all have very diverse backgrounds, but we, are, we share one thing in common is that we, like one life is far too many and we don't want to sit aside while we wait. We want to be a part of the fight. So I'm, I'm happy that this collaboration is happening and I'm further happy that my goal of being a part of a survivor leadership group who are joining different stakeholders to stop trafficking is happening. And my goal is to continue to support efforts to make sure that this continues to happen. Last question before we sign off. What does justice look like for a survivor? (laughs) Yes, I will see justice would be um, ability to have a sense of autonomy. Justice would be empowerment. And justice would be accomplishing goals that survivor has for herself, whether it's to, you know, bringing their family in America, having access to education or access to employment or ability to accomplish other self-defined milestones, right? You know, that's what justice for a survivor look like. And I want to point something out, Cindy. Justice for survivor is different than what justice for trafficker look like. So this will be a justice for survivor. This is a self-survivor justice. It's just the ability to achieve goals and having access to be in leadership position, just being able to be independent without having to only have two choice, go back to the life or move forward. I think that's when healing happened and healing happened when justice is defined that way. That is excellent. And I love that you clarified the difference between criminal justice and justice that makes things right for the survivor. Thank you so much, Bella, for being on the Ending Human Trafficking podcast today. We have enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. Indeed, Bella, thank you so much for everything you're doing, not only the resilience and the courage you've had, and now having taken so much of that and to serve others. What an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it with us. We hope that you will dive into some of the resources mentioned here today. I would invite you to go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. When you do, you'll find all the details from today's episode, notes, all the organizations we've listed, and all those links, of course. Um, In addition, it'll also be an opportunity for you to download a copy of Sandy's book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It's absolutely free. It'll teach you the five critical things that Sandy has identified in her work that you should know before you join the fight against human trafficking. We mentioned some of those principles today. You can dive in in more detail. Uh, Get access by going over to endinghumantrafficking.org. And while you're online, we're also inviting you to discover more about the next Ensure Justice Conference coming up in March 2021. That's going to be March 5th and 6th. You can learn more by going over to insurejustice.com for details. And if today's conversation has raised a question for you, take a moment to reach out to us via email, feedback at endinghumantrafficking.org. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, Andy. Take care. Dave.